Well, thank you all once again. It is a great joy and a privilege to preach God's word to you today. Uh, if you do want to read more about this passage, I highly recommend John Calvin's commentary. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to say was first said by him. And of all the commentaries I read on this passage for preparation for today, he was the most helpful. But uh, we've already prayed. Let me pray once again as we begin. Heavenly Father, you promised that when your word goes out, it will not return to you empty. We ask that you keep your promise and that as we continue to hear it read out and preached, that you may be glorified and we are edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you are all aware, it is Christmas in one week's time. It's a time for family and friends, for light and decorations, for gift giving and for celebration. And have you noticed some of the language uh, that is used at this time of year uh, that reflects that same sort of sentiment? Uh, Merry Christmas. What a wonderful time of year. Uh, Jolly that we should all be feeling happy and full of joy around Christmas is deeply embedded in our culture and in us as Christians. Now, I'm not here to say that those things are wrong. The things that we get to enjoy at Christmas are good gifts from God. Yet for many of us, in addition to the joy, there can also be much sadness. Family gatherings can be marred by conflict or absences. A time of celebration and gift-giving may be limited because of poverty. And especially for those of us who are getting older, the joy of Christmas can often be overshadowed by the weight of loss, of sin, or disappointment. Well, if that's how you feel today, these verses are for you. What we're looking at today was not written simply to tell us how Jesus came into the world. It is not simply the origin story of Jesus, but it addresses the concerns of those who think that God has forgotten them, that he is ignoring them or simply doesn't care. If as we head toward Christmas, you aren't joyful, if you are overwhelmed by your sin, by shame, by guilt, if you feel old and forgotten, these verses are for you. So stick with me and let's have a look at them together. Our first point, number one, Jesus is from the Spirit not a scandal. Verse 18 says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child. I've left out the Holy Spirit there for the moment because that helps us see the issue. Do you see it? Mary is pregnant. She's with child and she is pledged to be married to Joseph but he is not the father of the child. Now, even for most of us today, despite being 21st century people living in an increasingly secular society, the scandal is still obvious. How much more of an issue do you think it would have been for them then? A little bit of cultural background for us. At that time and in this culture, there is a difference between engagement and being pledged to marry. Engagement comes first and is not binding. The man and woman are free to disengage. But that is not the case once they are pledged or betrothed, which is a formal, legal and binding status. So binding, in fact, that while they do not live together or sleep together, they would have been known as husband and wife, requiring divorce to separate. And Mary's pregnancy would have been considered adultery. 
Back to our passage, this seems to be exactly what Joseph thought has happened. His future wife, Mary, the woman who he agreed to love and have children with, is pregnant. And he knows that it's not his child. He knows that he hasn't slept with her, which to his knowledge must mean that Mary has been unfaithful. And this brings us to verse 19. Have a look. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The righteousness of Joseph, his sense of justice, his desire to obey God's law, means he cannot overlook this. He cannot overlook the offence that Mary has committed. This scandal must be dealt with. Yet at the same time, he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. Uh, John Calvin, who's a, 19th, sorry, a 16th century theologian, comments on this verse. He says, Joseph, therefore, moved by an ardent love of justice, condemned the crime of which he supposed his, supposed his wife to have been guilty, while the gentleness of his disposition prevented him from going to the utmost rigour of the law. By divorcing her quietly, he doesn't sweep the scandal under the rug. But at the same time, he doesn't go as far as he could. Out of compassion, out of love for Mary, he restrains himself from the full expression of the law and instead seeks to divorce her quietly. However, as outside observers and readers of this passage, we know something that he doesn't. Mary has actually not been unfaithful. She hasn't run off with the mother man while pledged to Joseph. She has not sinned. No, she is pregnant, not through a scandal, but through the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't tell you the mechanics of how this happened. How the Holy Spirit can cause someone to become pregnant, I do not know. Uh, I'll be doing a unit next semester on the Holy Spirit. I will ask my lecturer then. But the how is not actually important to us right now. What's important, what one of the main things this passage is trying to explain to us is that Jesus is not the result of sin. He is not the result of unlawlessness or unfaithfulness. And the passage drives that message home here to us and to Joseph in verse 20 to 21. Again, have a read with me. Verses 20 to 21. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. As a quick aside, did you notice that Mary never tells Joseph why she is pregnant? When the angel approached Joseph, he had no idea about God's involvement in this situation. And this must have been incredibly difficult for Mary not to say anything. And why not say? Well, I suspect because it makes Joseph's account of the situation far more credible. He hasn't been influenced by his wife. When he tells the story to others, he can say with perfect honesty, I was set on divorcing her. My mind was made up, but now I know that I was wrong. Mary hasn't sinned, and God told me this, not Mary. 
So where are we at? Mary is pregnant. Joseph now knows this pregnancy is from God, not sin. It's from the spirit, not a scandal. Why does this matter? Well, because of what we read in verse 21. Let me read you verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He will save their people from their sins. As if, uh, as I said in the introduction, if you're overwhelmed by your sin, by your shame, by your guilt, then someone who is similarly afflicted is of no benefit to you. I have a background in nursing. Uh, What my sick patients need is not for me to climb into bed with them and pretend to be sick. What they need is a nurse who is healthy, who is not burdened with sickness and so can care for them in a way that they cannot care for themselves. Now, if Jesus here came into this world through sin, if he was born into this world through scandal and not by the Spirit, we would have no confidence that he can deal with our sins. For he too would be similarly afflicted and would need rescue. He would need saving himself. And as we approach Jesus this Christmas, as we come to him in prayer, as we reflect on what he's done to save his people from their sins, know that you are not dealing with someone who is just as sick as you are. This should give us confidence that he can deal with us. These verses give us hope that he can save us, that we can trust him to deal with our sins because he is not from this world. He is born of spirit and not scandal. We come now to our second point, fulfilling promises that God made. Jesus' birth is fulfilling promises that God made. Read with me from verses 22. That is verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When we think about the events of the Bible, we often imagine the miracles, the great displays of God's power, that these would have been far more plausible or realistic to those people then compared to us now, especially when we consider the events around Jesus' birth. Everything from the angels delivering messages, uh, the virgin birth itself, the shepherds seeing a great company of angels praising the Lord, the prophecies that... uh, around John the Baptist and what happened with Herod, it's easy for us to think, wow, look how active God is. Look at all the ways that he's working in the world. That must have been incredible. And so when we read verses 22 and 23, we often don't realise the impact, the significance of these verses. But I want you to place yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Imagine what his understanding of God working in the world would have been like at that time. Let's think about the normal, everyday Israelite. For the last 400 years, you've heard nothing new from God. The most recent prophet was Malachi, who spoke generations ago to people who are now long dead. Ever since then, you've had silence. God has stopped speaking new words to you. And not just that, but as a nation, it feels as if God has abandoned you. You were Israel, 
not going from strength to strength, but from weakness to weakness. Though small, you used to be mighty. At the time of David and Solomon, your kings, they were great and powerful. You as a nation were great and powerful. Kings and queens came to them from all over the world seeking wisdom and advice. But now your temple is a shadow of the former glory it was. You were ruled by the Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. Attempts to rebel have failed and as a nation you are insignificant. The point is, when Joseph hears these words in verse 22 and 23, he is coming to them not with a history of witnessing God's presence, but with a history of feeling God's absence. For the average everyday Israelite, it is plain to see that God has stopped talking to them. It feels like God has abandoned them, and it would seem that he no longer cares. With all that in mind, let's again hear these words. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see now the significance of those words? What does the virgin birth mean? Well, it means that God hasn't abandoned Israel. Even though that's what it might have looked like and felt like, God is actually still here. He's still active and he's going to keep his word. 700 years before this moment, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to an Israel that was desperate for rescue. He told them then that they will have a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. When that happens, you will call him Emmanuel, because contrary to popular opinion, God is with us. And finally, now, this is coming true. God has kept his word that he spoke 700 years ago. He hasn't abandoned Israel. He hasn't left them. He is with them, fulfilling the promises that he made. But before we uh, move on to the next point, we're going to go back just a moment because there's even more going along according to the same theme. In verse 18, we read that Jesus is the Messiah. And in verse 20, we read that Joseph is son of David. Well, what does all that mean? Well, even further back in Israel's history than Isaiah, at the time of King David and King Solomon, God promised something to King David. Uh, let me read to you from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is 2 Samuel Chapter 7, starting at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This promise of a king that God made to David, the one who will rule forever in perfect righteousness, is something Israel has been waiting a long time for. This Messiah or Christ is the saviour who will rescue Israel. Back to our passage, the angel addresses David, uh, sorry, Joseph, as son of David. Because that reminds him and it reminds us about these promises. 
that from the line of David, this awaited king will come. By highlighting that Joseph is a descendant of David, we're reminded that these promises God made a long, long time ago are still there and they are about to be fulfilled. Despite appearances, despite what Israel might be feeling, God hasn't left them, but he is now bringing to fulfilment the promises that he made. And so, point number three, we can trust God now and in the future. We saw in point one that Jesus is from the Spirit, not a scandal. And in point two, we saw that Jesus is the fulfilment of promises God made. The question is, how do we apply this to ourselves? What should we do in response to this passage? Well, I'd like to suggest two areas that have to do with our relationship with God, which this passage can be applied to. First, we can trust Jesus now. When I was 20, I used to think that by the time I was 30, I would be mature. Uh, the issues that I have, in particular my sins, they would be the ways in which I lived life my own way and not God's way. They would all be dealt with. However, now into my 30s, I can report this hasn't happened. Instead, as I reflect on my life, I realise that in many ways, instead of putting off my sin, I've only added many, many more to the list. Perhaps you're the same. The longer we live, the more time we spend on this earth. Sadly, the longer the list of things that we have done wrong. Regardless of whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or this is your first time in church, each of us is accountable to God for the wrong that we do. And that can be terrifying. On the outside, we might look the same. Uh, when we come into church today, we wear the mask. We pretend that everything is going well. But on the inside, you might feel a mess. Perhaps you haven't prayed to God for days or weeks or even months. Let these verses that we've read today reassure you. No matter how deep your sin might go, no matter how ashamed you might feel, our sin, our guilt, it doesn't cause Jesus to recoil away from you. It's the very reason that he's come. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give the name Jesus, him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. We don't need to hide from him. He knows that we aren't perfect. That's why he came. And as we saw before, he can deal with our sins because like a doctor or a nurse, he's not sick himself. He is born of the spirit and not a scandal. He is not afflicted with the sin that we are, which means he has the power to deal with it. When you are next reminded of your sin, come back to these verses. Remember that your sin is the reason that Jesus came in the first place. You can trust him now to forgive you and deal with you. But perhaps what distresses you is not your sin, but the apparent inaction of God. Do you get frustrated with him? As change doesn't seem to be happening. In your life and the life of others, perhaps you pray for many things over a long time, and you see nothing as a result. Maybe church doesn't feel like it's growing. 
It feels like God has left or he has abandoned you. Again, let these verses today remind you that while it might appear that God isn't working, he is. For Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, they felt the same. All of God's actions and promises seemed a very long way off. But this passage is written to remind us that God has not forgotten his people. Like Israel in Egypt, or Joseph in our passage today, we can trust God to keep his word. And aren't we, we aren't always, sorry, privileged to see the how or the why he does this. Mary and Joseph, for example, have no idea how by the Spirit Jesus could possibly be conceived. But the fact that Jesus is born is proof to them then and to us that God does keep his word. And this means we can trust him with the future. We are still waiting for Christ to return. We're still waiting for things to be brought under his feet. And while we wait for these things to be fulfilled, it so often seems like God has forgotten us in the meantime. Let these verses remind you that he hasn't. Jesus is proof that God is with us. And in the meantime, Joseph here is a good example of what it looks like to trust in God while waiting for fulfilment of his promises. Again, read with me from verse 24. Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. The Lord spoke and Joseph obeyed. And I have no doubt that would have been difficult at times. But the trust Joseph had that the Lord would fulfil his promises in the future is what enabled him to obey God in the present. How much more privileged are we to get to celebrate Christmas? We have seen the fulfilment of God's promises in Christ, not just Jesus' birth, but his death and his resurrection. If God has kept his word about that, we can trust that he will keep his other promises. So let's obey him now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he came to save us from our sins and that you kept your word. Help us now to come to Jesus with our sins to ask for forgiveness and to live life now, trusting in you for the future. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.